Yes, yes, yes. 30 minutes or less. Let's get right into it. It's the checkerboard chatter here on your Tennessee Rivals page. What's up? The Vol Report continuing to pump up as we get closer and closer to that September 2 date. Volunteers, Cavaliers, Nashville, Tennessee. Of course, the lead-up found right here on the checkerboard chatter. Yeah, we continue to truck along here on season two. What's up? You know, it's the guy, Tyler Ivins. I'm so glad that I continue to point out these things to you at Tyler Ivins in the DMs because, you know, I've been promising you mailbags, mailbags, mailbags. We'll get to all those. We'll dive into those questions. A lot we have to get into, and we need to start right now. If you would like to subscribe, now would be a huge time to do so. Well, because if you look at the calendar, we're recording this Friday afternoon. That's off the 4th of July holiday, so July 7, and you could probably do the quick math in your head if this is July 7, September 2. Yes, less than 60 days away until it's football time in Tennessee, and uh, uh, also coming up in about nine days. I guess I'm leaving that Sunday, the 16th. It'll be the official kickoff of SEC football with SEC Media Days. Three hours west from where I am right now in Knoxville, Nashville, Tennessee, the headquarters for SEC Media Day. So I know for a lot of you excited about kind of not just what Tennessee brings to the table in 2023, but also the other 13 programs that share the Southeastern Conference with the volunteers. And I mean, the last time we get to do so, it's about to get a little crowded next year with the additions of both Oklahoma and Texas coming in from the Big 12. Without any further ado, things we need to get to, let's go ahead and break those in. Mailbag, yep, we're going to have that begin now. First time to get a chance to take a look at a lot of these. Uh, Donnie, can any of the Vols win an individual award in 2023? Okay, let's talk about it a little bit. Jalen Hyatt's Bolitnikoff award-winning season last year was absolutely phenomenal. Non-existent before we got to the Alabama win for Tennessee at home at Neyland Stadium. But nonetheless, it doesn't matter. Slow and steady. If you bolt out of the gates a winner at the end of the season, you cannot argue. Even Ohio State fans will attempt to. They cannot argue that the best performance by one solitary wide receiver in all of college football in 2022 was Tennessee's Jalen Hyatt. Look, the product from the state of South Carolina might have slipped when it came to later in the spring in the NFL draft. But the New York Giants right now believe that they have something special in Jalen Hyatt. He's had to be humbled a little bit. As somebody who is a New York fan, I, I'm frequenting the back papers, the headlines, you know, in New York. It's all about how you grab the back headlines, not the front headline pages. And right now, uh, kind of a, you know, name another 21-year-old. We were 21 at one point in time. You got to be humbled a little bit, do you not? So apparently Jalen Hyatt, who went into New York, needs to be humbled. But the Giants, who have had plenty of players come in and quickly go through the humbling process, have later turned into productive players. I expect Jalen Hyatt to do the same thing. Back to the original question. You know, last year, Jalen Hyatt's performance was unworldly, right? A university at one point in time that for a small period of time was known as wide receiver U here on Rocky Top Tennessee has been missing some of those playmakers, those can't-miss wide receiver playmakers. And now it seems since Josh Heupel has come in and implemented this new system, it seems like the Volunteers could quickly be getting back on track in that category. Now, it's funny that I'm bringing up wide receivers because it seems like that this year, if anybody's going to bring home any type of hardware, you probably need to look at the wide receiver position again. Brew McCoy comes to mind immediately because it's another year in the system. 
He had an opportunity to grow up a little bit since leaving the Pac-12 when being surrounded around Jalen Hyatt and Cedric Tillman last year. Much like Hendon Hooker had his go-to target. I mean, heck, look at the Pittsburgh overtime win last year, for example. I believe the targets were 17-18 targets for Cedric Tillman from the right arm of Hendon Hooker. I suspect that this year you're going to see some similarities of kind of horning in on one target this year for Joe Milton. Plenty of mouths to feed in this offense. If you catch yourself only feeding one guy for four quarters of football across 12 regular season games, probably isn't going to work out well for you. But I think percentages of targets, that's going to lean in the direction of Rue McCoy this year. I don't know if Tennessee brings home any individual awards. All that being said, the aforementioned Marvin Harrison Jr. this year, he looks like that he is a man possessed. Say what you will, maybe some people, small circles, likely in Columbus, Ohio, believe that he should have been in the running and winning last year's Bolitnikoff Award. Jalen Hyatt had a standalone season. I think this year Marvin Harrison shows why he's likely going to be a top three pick in next year's NFL draft in Detroit. I think for me, Marvin Harrison Jr. is a runaway favorite for the Bolitnikoff. Brew, I think, can give him a little bit of run for his money. But I think that the wide receiver for top best in the country goes to Columbus, Ohio, and Ohio State's Marvin Harrison Jr. I know immediately you hear me answer that question, Donnie, and you think, well, maybe you were leaning more Heisman. Maybe you were leaning more some other position. I think that this year there's already kind of a shoehorn player or players for certain individual awards. I think Marvin Harrison Jr., as I mentioned, the Bolitnikoff Award for him this year, it's his to lose. Somebody else emerges, perhaps maybe we're having another conversation maybe midway through the season, like we were with Jalen Hyatt last year in October. For the Heisman, it seems like that there are three players right now that college football is going to be looking at of competing for that award. Could we see our first repeat since Archie Griffin with Caleb Williams from USC? I think Drake May at North Carolina under Mac Brown has a very, very real chance. And I think somebody that not enough people are paying attention to, maybe they are now because the hype is starting to churn out in the SEC. I really think that Jaden Daniels at LSU has a realistic chance to be in New York and be a finalist for the Heisman Trophy. Now, let's see if that actually all comes together this year for Brian Kelly's team, but just because Tennessee's not going to be mentioned, Donnie, in any of the individual award categories, like I believe they will, that does not believe that does not mean, or do I believe that the University of Tennessee is not going to have a successful season on the football field in 2023? Again, individual awards may not come this year for Tennessee, but if this is that slow, like Lowell year, that slow, who is it to say Tennessee takes a step back in the win column, but still progresses forward? Josh Eiffel's third year here in Knoxville. Just be one man but I think it might be difficult. Uh, I believe the ball, 98 balls. I believe the balls can beat both Bama and Georgia. What's the game that worries you the most? Oh, gosh. Um, this is not going to be a popular answer. My answer, if you're taking Bama and Georgia off the table, but well, first of all, if you're not, the answer is Georgia. It's the measuring stick game in November. Everybody was going to be fighting and paying three, four times the market value on the secondary market when you could get your tickets on, uh, hands on those tickets. But if you're saying in this question, I like to try to, if there's not specifics, I like to try to break down the question how I would ask it. If you're taking Alabama and Georgia off the table, 
The answer should be either one of Florida in the swamp or Texas A&M at home. But I'm not going to say either of those games. If you're taking Bama and Georgia off the schedule, Kentucky on the road. Now, okay, okay, okay. Hear me out. Here's why. Let me flip the question on you, the listener, the viewer, for one second. If there is any game right now that Tennessee can ill afford to lose for whatever reason in 2023, what would it be? If your immediate answer isn't South Carolina, we shouldn't even be doing this in the first place. They derailed your national championship hopes. South Carolina was dancing on your grave last year. Spencer Rattler's trying to have a Joe Burrow moment with a cigar. He would later parlay that into a win against Clemson, which then would match those two teams together in the Orange Bowl. I think I heard Sandstorm enough in a four-quarter period that if I never heard it again, I could still beat for beat, hear it still when I go to my grave and die. Not only that, but Shane Beamer, who coaches are supposed to be a little mature or they're supposed to do a lot of the ignoring on social media, it was almost as if he went on social, sought out his name, and directly went after a couple of Tennessee fans to sprinkle some salt in that wound. I think that we're on the cusp, if we're not already ledged off, in the making of a new rivalry, a new age rivalry. Like, you know, for our grandparents or maybe our great-grandparents, it was Vanderbilt. It was Alabama. For me, it was Florida. For a lot of people my age, a lot of people now, maybe it's Georgia. I think we're approaching where South Carolina, Tennessee ends up being kind of that new, oh, you want me to rip your throat out game. Tennessee this year, I think, has plenty in store for South Carolina. But I only bring this up for this reason. What Carolina did to Tennessee when the Vols thought that they had a path and did to the college football playoff, What did Tennessee do to Kentucky last year? Eerie Rocky Top, black jerseys, just pistol whipped them up and down the field. They made Will Levis look like a junior varsity quarterback for four quarters. Kentucky keeps receipts much like Tennessee has on South Carolina. Kentucky, since Josh Heifel has arrived, Mark Stoops hasn't been able to figure him out. Hell, year one, Stoops had to completely abandon what his game plan was and tried to outscore Tennessee. Then you saw what happened a year prior. And then now you see what happens now when you're trying to play catch up and then you get embarrassed at Neyland Stadium. Balls have to go to Lexington. But not only that, look who Tennessee plays before they go to Kentucky. Week prior, road game at Tuscaloosa. Week prior to that, home against Texas A&M. And then the bye week was before A&M. So now you're in a four-week, three-week window of open date, A&M's tough roster, Alabama speaks for itself, road game against Kentucky. If you and I are on the same page right now, 98 balls, or you and I, the listener, the viewer, are on the same page, can you imagine if Tennessee cracks open a schedule and goes, bang Virginia, bang Austin P, bang Florida, bang UTSA, bang South Carolina? You're 5-0, and right? Let's say off the open date, you struggle against A&M. Hell, you can beat them. Five and one, six and oh. I don't know if you get Alabama this year, but just in case you had problems with Jimbo and Bobby Petrino, just in case you had problems on the road against Alabama, you cannot start a season five and oh, have back to back losses to two SEC West opponents, and then Kentucky's licking their chops waiting for you. 
just me, but I think the most important game or at least worrisome game for Tennessee this year very easily could be that Kentucky game. Because right now, I think Mark Stoops understands, you know how you shake things up in an East that seems to already be crowning Georgia as their division champ? Go in there and see if you can grab Tennessee by the ankle and drag them back into the dirt. I don't know why I'm being so morbid today. It seems like all these questions are about gravesides or caskets or bury you or death and flatlining. Point is, I know everybody probably can build their own reasons behind what game worries them the most. That game against Kentucky for so many different reasons, and it's away from Neyland Stadium. A little worrisome. Just a little worrisome. Just me, though. Uh, let's see here. JT says, what are your thoughts on moving Mincy across the offensive line? That's actually a really great question. Um, man, this kind of question begins with just how good Darnell Wright was last year before heading to be a top 10 pick of the Chicago Bears in 2022. Uh, 23. You know, I, I look at the situation like this. <clears throat> I remember when J.J. Crawford and Gerald Mincy, Florida transfer, were going head-to-head last year in spring camp. And I remember Eric Kane, has his, check him out, by the way. You can go see him locked on balls, everything they do over at VolQuest. And I remember talking to Kaner and saying, well, what's really happening right now? And there was kind of that growing period. There was kind of the new guy in the room, new blood, that's Gerald Mincy. Not only did he best J.J. Crawford for that start, I remember that first game against Ball State. It was still 65-35 or 70-30 advanced for Gerald Mincy. He grew. He ended up fitting into this room perfectly, and he complemented the rest of that offensive line with Carvin and Cooper Mays and the rest of them very, very nicely. I think there's now a sense of trust for Glenn Ellerby with Gerald Mincy, where they can take Mincy, move him over to Darnell Wright's position and go, all right, we expect you to not perform to a top 10 level, but be adequate and be able to keep Joe Milton off his backside. The question, not to mix it up or to mince it up, because you see what I did there, because of your question, I think you, I get the vibe you asking this question is more of, are you okay with taking a known established commodity that's on the left side, moving it over to the right? Well, I guess for reverse camera on the left side, moving it over to the right side when it was already efficient enough. John Campbell Jr., I think, can really be talked about as the most important, at least one of the most important pieces to the transfer portal this offseason. I immediately look at, immediately look at John Campbell Jr. and I say, okay. You're coming from Miami. You've been a starter for some time down at Coral Gables. What happened with Mario Cristobal his first year down in Miami? By the way, does anybody know what position Mario Cristobal played during his time at Miami? Oh, wait, that's right. He was an offensive lineman. What happened with Cristobal where you starting left tackle John Campbell Jr. are sitting there being coached by a man who – Knows the position so well. He was excellent at it on his way to the pro football leagues. And why would you not stay there and try to absorb as much as possible? Perhaps maybe there's a deeper question there than perhaps maybe that's being led on. But I'm going to take Campbell, his maturity, and what he learned already, place him there. Again, left side of the offensive line, reverse camera angle here. Left side of the offensive line. I'm intrigued what Javante Spragans will bring to the table. Many believe that he can already be a first-round talent next year, much like Darnell Wright was this past year. 
But no matter what happens on this offensive line, the most important piece hasn't been spoke of yet. And that's Cooper Mays. You know, it. I learned so much about the importance of a center when Brandon Kennedy was here transferring out of Alabama under Jeremy Pruitt and getting a chance to talk to Brandon so many times, understanding kind of the thought process of a center, of being kind of the captain of the offensive line. It's so much more than blocking assignments. It's so much more than assignments in the trenches. But being the quarterback of the offensive line, I don't mean this for an over-exaggeration or to try to hammer a point home, but for every person who says Joe Milton, the importance of Joe Milton, the importance of this player, skill position, look at what they, oh man, Brew McCoy, Squirrel White has to, Ramel Keaton has, behind Joe Milton, Cooper Mays' health right now needs to be storyline number two, or Cooper Mays point blank needs to be the second most talked about person as the 11 people who are on the offensive side of the football. Much like last year, Tennessee's football season kind of hung in the balance on the health of Darnell Wright. I think this year you could say, if you want Tennessee to surprise or come up and shock some people like they did in 2022 with a wins and loss record, I think it's very, very easy to state if you want to see any type of perhaps maybe duplication or if you want to see a repeat performance that you got in 22, Cooper Mays' health has to be priority number one on the list for that to occur. So to answer long-winded your original question, JT, I'm fine with Mincy moving to the right side of the line. I want to see what John Campbell Jr. can do. Tennessee clearly has to feel like that they're getting somebody who's established and will be comfortable working in that position if they have that much more. I think it says more about Mincy, actually, JT, that you succeeded, you passed the flying colors on the left side of the line. Let's go ahead and move it to the right side. We can slide Campbell in here. Ellerby, I feel like, at least from the health standpoint, has to be happy with what he has thus far. That can very quickly change. It's going to be intriguing to see if the injury bug stays away from the offensive line that was so impressive last year in 2022 during that Orange Bowl season. Uh, Marshall says, realistically, how many teams can win the playoff this year? Realistically, how many teams can win the playoff this year? Realistically? Nine, eight, eight or nine. How many will have a best chance possible to make it and win to the playoff this year? Five. Now you said realistically, like realistically, there are conferences out there that open the door and give you an opportunity to play for the college football playoff national championship. But I'm not going to get suckered in by a lot of those, oh, value when it comes to Vegas and what's on the line and what they're wagering or Oh, if this, if, if, ifs work out, what's the old saying? If an if was a fifth, we'd all be drunk. Right. There's so many ifs and what ifs that could possibly happen this year in college football. But if you're asking me point blank, hey, Ivans, I'm giving you $100 of my money. Who would you bet? I would say that realistically, I guess in your terms, in my opinion, only five teams can really win the national championship this year. And surprisingly, the SEC only has one team, and it's Georgia. Now, I know immediately that might slam on the brakes. That might make people just go, hold up, hang on a second. Stay with me for a moment. Georgia, no matter who they play in the SEC West, they're better than them. They are. Now, I understand some people would say, well, Saban won't want to. I get it. 
Nick Saban, who is now 72 some odd years of age, doesn't have a lot left in him. And there's a real chance that Nick Saban is only sticking around because he wants to win that one last national championship. And their roster from top to bottom, man, is it impressive. Very impressive. But I think that this year, the LSU, the tiger in the room, if you will, they are legitimate contenders to be able to repeat as SEC West champs again. I think that this year, Jaden Daniel and an improved offensive line for Brian Kelly down in Baton Rouge gives, excuse me, this LSU team a chance to, I think, beat everybody on their schedule. I I think LSU, and if they do trip up, they're an 11-1 team. I think that they can beat Alabama once again this year. I think that they can go to the SEC championship, but kind of their prize is going to be getting their butt handed to them again by Georgia. So even if that doesn't occur, Alabama LSU winner, they end up going to Atlanta and they lose to Georgia all over again. We already know how soft the Bulldogs schedule is this year. Again, I know some Georgia fans watch this channel and they're looking for any opportunity to kind of throw a stick of dynamite. We understand Ball State, Oklahoma, you didn't have enough time. That still doesn't take away from the fact that the schedule this year is SAWFT. I move on. Georgia is one. Last year, Ohio State had their lunch money taken from them. They were crammed into a locker by Michigan, and they both still made it into the college football playoff. You can copy and paste that again this year. Michigan, Ohio State. Much like LSU, is USC's offensive line improved? I trust Caleb Williams. That guy almost beat Utah on one leg last year until he essentially crumbled on the sidelines in Vegas during the Pac-12 title game. I think USC with a healthy offensive line, with healthy offensive line, and I think there's a school that nobody's talking about right now, and it was the team that Tennessee beat in the Orange Bowl. I think Cape Klubnik's the real deal. Another year under center. The offense, if you go back and look at the numbers for Dabo, under DJ Uilele, DJ QB, uh, DJ QB, they had one of the slowest offenses in college football. I'm talking they were getting way over three snaps every one minute. Compared to Tennessee, it's funny these two teams got together because at one point in time, Heupel's offense, the fastest in college football, Clemson, even though they had benched DJQB and moved on to Klubnik, they were the slowest. That clearly had improved by the time they met in January, but you kind of get the drift there. I think Clemson this year for a couple of reasons. I think that Mike Norvell still has another year, especially with Jordan Travis. Uh, 24, we can be realistic about FSU. I think that this year, because Clemson gets North Carolina in Death Valley, I think that matchup with Drake May favors Clemson. I think that this year, the matchups outside of the rematch revenge game with South Carolina, which, by the way, is in Columbia this year, that last game of the year, the in-state rivalry. I think Clemson not being talked about, Clemson being slept on, I think that that is kind of to the advantage of Dabo Sweeney, much like it was for Josh Heupel last year. So to answer your question again, Marshall, yeah, sure. I think you could sprinkle in maybe one of Washington or Oregon. You can obviously put the SEC West winner of LSU or Alabama in that mix. I think it would be foolish not to put a team like Texas in the mix in the Big 12. And this might be nuts. Might be nuts. But keep an eye on what Luke Fickle and Wisconsin's doing in the, in the Big 10 West this year. Already an excellent defense that now gets brought up to the elite status under Fickle. 
They improved their offense, and man, did they get a massive upgrade for, with Tanner Mordecai transferring in from SMU. So I gave you a nine. I think that only five teams are going to make the playoff, and and to me, it would have to be Mike Bobo coming in as offensive coordinator at Georgia, just absolutely pulling malpractice or shooting himself in the foot to keep Georgia again from playing for a national championship. I think we're talking about three consecutive national championships uh, for Bobo and that staff. Uh, time for one more. Let's get to it. And we get, Oh, basketball. Uh, was Grant Williams being traded good or bad move for his career in the NBA? All right, Rich, let's cap things off of basketball. So how about Grant? Uh, the VFL who has started his career in Boston, I think that this is good and good. It really is. Now, championship pitcher takes a step back. But what Grant does here is he gets out of Boston. He moves to a Dallas Mavericks franchise right now that's really in a peculiar situation. Allegedly, allegedly, Luka Doncic's superstar of the Mavericks has already shared his kind of dis- his frustrations with the organization and Remember, they went out and they acquired Kyrie Irving last year, and they still didn't make the postseason. They were actually being investigated for tanking so they could hold on to their top 10 pick because of the trade they made with New York a few years back. Mark Cuban finds players. It just got messy near the end. Luca mentioned that if there wasn't significant improvement this year, that he was going to force himself out of the Lone Star State. Grant Williams leaves Boston with a new contract, going to get paid over $50 million over the next four years. You can kind of break it down what it means for him. That's a situation where it's good for Grant. He's making money. Good for Grant. He's going to Dallas where playing time will improve. I wouldn't say significantly improve. But for Grant, why would you not want to go somewhere? By the way, Texas doesn't have a state income tax dollar sign. So for anybody out there who says, man, that stinks, Grant left Boston. Look, I know the ultimate goal is to win a championship in the NBA, but right now I would say, much like the previous question, there realistically is only five or six teams right now who are in position to win an NBA championship. Yes, Boston is one of them, but would Grant want to sit on the bench making minimal money at his position for his talent and perhaps maybe only average somewhere between 7 to 14 minutes a game. Yes, I understand that championships are huge in the sport of the NBA. But your Grant Williams now moving to, again, a state that provides you to keep a lot of the coin that's already in your pocket that you're making. You get more minutes, and you're already fast-tracked towards your next contract long after your tenure is over with the Dallas Mavericks. And hey, what happens if, in fact, things do not improve in Dallas Maybe they look at the Luka Doncic's trade demand or the I'm getting out of town. Maybe Mark Cuban is a season away paying money and then blowing this thing up. You par chance could be making serious dollars currently in Texas. And by next offseason, two offseasons from now, you're part of a trade that gets you right back into an NBA championship pitcher. For right now, if you're Grant, you got to like what's happening right now. This, all this, of course, coming because Jalen Brown has to start making some serious money now. That's why you saw not only Grant being shipped off to Dallas, but just a week or so ago, Marcus Smart, the Okie State product, he was shipped off to Memphis and kind of that we have to sign and trade acquisition of Kristaps Porzingis. All right, man, I need to drink water because I have been doing a lot of talking for the last couple of minutes. So let's get you caught up with what you need to know. 
We're less than 10 days away from heading to Nashville for SEC Media Days. You rely on the checkerboard chatter every week to kind of get you caught up with what's happening around Rocky Top while the countdown is on. Hopefully you enjoy your fireworks over the 4th, your barbecue over July 4th. Hopefully you are ecstatic as you continue to rip away your day calendar as we get to September 2nd and the showdown between Tennessee and Virginia. Hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. And oh yeah, speaking of subscriptions, now is no better time than any to start subscribing to the Tennessee Rivals page at the Ball Report. So if you want the latest on what's happening with your favorite players as we get closer and closer to the start of the Tennessee football season, you know where to find it. For everybody here at the Checkerboard Chatter, hope you enjoyed your holiday, and we're back next week. My name is Tyler Ivins as we continue season number two of the Checkerboard Chatter right here on the Tennessee Rivals page.